This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Today we're in week three of our message series, uh, Coloring Inside the Lines. We're talking about God's plan for sex. If you missed the first couple weeks, you can um, listen to those on the podcast or watch them online. But the first week we started talking about uh, God's intention and God's design for sex. And we looked at um, Genesis 2 and saw that this was God's idea. We looked at 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul tells us this is what it should look like in marriage. Um, And then last week we talked about what happens when we color outside the lines and looked at 1 Corinthians 6 and talked about how um, sexual sin has a, a unique ability to destroy our identity, that it doesn't just pull us outside of God's plan, but it, it actually deceives us into thinking that's who we are, and we begin to find our identity in our sin. And then today we're going to talk about uh, when we have stepped outside of God's plan, how can we come back in? How can we be restored in that process? And so... Um, Initially, when I was thinking about this a couple months ago, I thought today would be more of like a a five steps kind of message. You know, like when you've stepped outside of God's plan, here are five things you can do and you can repent and you can dig into community and you can read the scriptures and you can be encouraged by others. And that's kind of how I thought it would go and how I was working on it. But the past couple weeks, especially, uh, I just kept coming back to the story in John chapter four of Jesus's interaction with the woman at the well. And I think it provides a, a much better picture for us. Um, the, the way I was thinking was kind of giving you five things that you should go do that will help you experience Christ's redemption. And I think what this story leads us to is more the idea of it's, it's not really about you and what you can do that's going to restore you. It's about Jesus and what he has done. And so that's really where we're going to focus in this morning and where we're kind of going to settle. Um, I don't really have a lot of jokes or fun stories for you, but I, I think this very simple understanding of how the gospel works, and as we're applying it to sexual sin, you'll see it not only applies there, but it applies to all of life as well. And, it, and it's just really kind of a, this, this big, huge statement of the glory and the power of God. So we're going to look at John chapter 4 in a minute. But before we do that, I want to talk for uh, just a couple seconds because I know when we talk about sexuality and we talk especially about the way that that we're tempted to step outside of the bounds that God has established for us, uh, for many of us, that can induce feelings of shame, right? And so sometimes we're ashamed of what we're doing. Uh, Maybe you're currently involved in a relationship that you know uh, does not honor God in any way, uh, but you just kind of think, well, this is the way the world works now. This is what you do. Uh, Maybe you're ruled by addictions and behaviors, and talks like this highlight what you already know but you just kind of feel helpless to beat them, you know? And so, so those can lead you to feeling kind of ashamed of like, well, this is just who I am. This is just what I do. Or sometimes we're not ashamed of what we're doing, but sometimes we're ashamed of what we've done. You know, maybe there was a season in your life where you lived outside of God's design. And, and since then you've been forgiven and you've been brought back in. You're doing your best to live the life he's called you to. But still, whenever it comes up, you have these feelings of shame of like, man, I can't believe I did that. Or because I did that here, that's why I'm having all these problems there. And it's just kind of this ongoing guilt and shame that you experience. And sometimes we feel ashamed because of what's been done to us. You know, and, and this one I think is especially difficult because if, if you've ever been the, the victim of some form of sexual abuse, like we, we deal with this as a church with uh, Royal Family Kids Camp, we see the, the way that, that just hearts are damaged in really traumatic ways when people are abused in this manner. We see it with crisis pregnancy outreach, when girls are taken advantage of, when they are sometimes drug outside of the lines of God's plan for sex. 
You know, and so even in that, there can be this, this really tragic form of shame where the victim somehow tries to bear the guilt of the, the one who did that to them. And, and so in all of these areas, there's, there's all the shame that can be associated with sexuality. And a lot of times it leads to us just not wanting to talk about it at all. Just kind of let's push it to the side. Let's not worry about it. Um, you know, all it does is make me feel bad. And so let's just forget about it. And then there's kind of a, a fourth way that some people can feel ashamed. And this one's pretty rare, but I, I think it's worth mentioning. And it's, it's typically, there's kind of this growing body of writing, typically from authors that are 35 and under. And they grew up in evangelical churches like ours. They grew up in youth groups that did True Love Waits programs and abstinence programs and things like that, kind of upholding this value of, of hey, be a virgin when you get married, save yourself for your spouse, uh, honor God, resist all these sexual urges. And all of those are wonderful messages. But there's a, a very small percentage of people who then when they get married, they feel shame for participating in God's plan. Because it's like the, in order to live this way, they, they kind of found all their identity in, well, I'm, I'm a virgin. I'm waiting. And they kind of begin to, to think all these sexual urges and everything else were just this evil thing. And so they begin to push back against it. And, and in all of that, then they move into marriage. And it's like, okay, all of this is okay now. But, but now they're feeling shame because they're just doing God, participating in God's plan. And so in all of this, there are all these weird dynamics at play. And sometimes even we, we have to be careful because our culture's message is if you feel shame associated with sexuality, uh, you just need to resist all that shame. That you never have anything to be ashamed of at all. You just do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want. And if somebody else tries to make you feel bad about it, well, then they're just kind of closed-minded and you don't pay attention to them. You just do what you want. But as Christians, one of the things we have to do is we have to begin to understand the difference between shame and conviction, right? Just feeling bad about what you're doing isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes you feel bad because it's God trying to highlight to you the ways you are stepping outside of his plan for sex and his plan for your life. And so there, there can be this season where you feel a lot of shame, a lot of discomfort, a lot of guilt, but that's because God is trying to draw you back to himself, but the, those other kinds, you know, kind of that false shame of forgiven sin or that false shame of something that's been done to you or that false shame of just living in God's plan, all of that should be rejected. You know, but, but in this conversation of sexuality and restoration, because of the elements of shame that can be involved, it can get pretty sticky and it can cause some of us just to kind of close off and say, well, this isn't for me because you don't know my story. Um, and to you this morning, I would say, you're absolutely right. I don't know it. Um, I'm sure if I did, I would be much more sympathetic to you. Um, but what I do know is what the scriptures tell us. And so that's where we're going to kind of take our stand this morning. And that's where we're going to turn to see what Jesus tells us about recovering from the shame of sexual sin, of, of when we've stepped outside of the lines, how can we be brought back in? So in John chapter 4, if you have your Bible with you, uh, we're going to look at that. It's a story of Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman at a well outside a small village. We'll begin in verse 5. It says, So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now, again, kind of the, the context of what's going on here uh, is important to understand because without it, you don't understand the significance of all that's going to happen in Jesus' conversation with this woman. And what you really need to understand from the beginning is there's no way Jesus should have ever looked at this woman or said a word to her. 
right? He is a good Jewish teacher. He's passing through Samaria. She's a Samaritan woman. We'll find out in a, in a few minutes that she has a, a pretty shady past. And the fact that she's coming out at noon, that's really significant, and we'll get to that. But, but from the beginning, it's important to understand, he's just, he should have no interaction with her. She's a Samaritan. The Jews and the Samaritans, they looked at each other. They had no uh, issues at all in common. They, they disagreed on all sorts of things. They would have fit very well in our current political climate where if you don't agree with me 100%, you're my enemy, and we'll just yell at each other and throw things, right? That was the, the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. That was how it worked. And then it says she's coming out at noon, at the hottest part of the day. Now, uh, again, that's important for us to understand because drawing water from the well was, was a woman's responsibility in this culture. And so the women would typically get up and first thing in the morning, they would go down as a group together to the well, all carrying their jars and their pots to collect their water for the day. And they would help each other draw it out. They would help each other carry it back. And it was kind of their community event for the day. It was time they would get caught up. They would talk. They would build their friendships and all these other sorts of things. But this woman isn't doing that. It says she's coming out at noon, at the hottest part of the day. And as we'll see in a little bit, the reason she's doing that is because she lives in shame. She doesn't want to come out. She's been married multiple times. She's living with a man that's not her husband. And so she doesn't want to walk out with all the other women where she might be mocked or ridiculed, or maybe she'll just be scorned. So to avoid all that, she just decides, I'll just go all by myself in the middle of the day. I won't worry about anything else that's going on. And when you think about your own life and the way you deal at times with the shame you've felt over sin, I'm sure you've reacted in the same way. See, sometimes we deal with our shame the way this woman does by we try, to, we try to hide it, we try to conceal it. You know, for us, it's not going to the well at noon, but it's, it's maybe going to lunch alone. It's maybe not hanging out with your neighbors anymore. It's maybe kind of losing contact with some close friends or family. Maybe it's looking for a new church to attend. Maybe it's all of these sorts of things where, where basically we're just making a decision of, I don't want to be around people who know the terrible things I've done. And so I'll just kind of move away from them and I'll structure my life to where I can either just live in isolation or make some new friendships where they don't know all the bad stuff that I've done. So that's one option. We can hide it. The other option is that we just embrace it. And we see this lady does the same thing. She's been married five times. The, the man she's with now we see later isn't even her husband. And so somewhere along the line, she's made the decision of this is just who I am. This is just what I do. And she's just dove deeper into it. And we can do that with our own sin as well, of thinking, well, it makes me feel ashamed, but maybe the problem is I'm too close to this other stuff. I'm too close to all these other people who have different standards. So if I just dive deeper into my darkness, if I surround my pe myself with people who will embrace this lifestyle, who will tell me it's okay, if I just go deeper, surely I'll find the satisfaction that I'm looking for. But then we see how Jesus reacts to the shame-filled woman. There's so much happening here that should cause him to reject her from the outset, and yet he speaks to her. It says in verse 7, When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me something to drink? The woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, again, this is, this is all of the lines are set in place. He is a respected Jewish teacher. He's a single male. There are rules to guide men like him that you shouldn't even speak to a woman. In this situation, he shouldn't have even looked at her as she came to the well. 
And for her as a Samaritan woman, she should not have engaged with him on any level. They both should have, she should have come, got her water, he should have sat there quietly, and they both should have pretended like the other never even existed. But Jesus reaches out, and he starts with just a really simple request. Can you give me a drink? She says, well, how can you ask me for a drink? But he ignores kind of the the convention of their culture, ignores her objection, and he gets right to the point. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman doesn't understand what he's talking about. She thinks he's talking about the well that's there in front of him. So she goes down this little conversation about, are you greater than Jacob who gave us this well? And and Jesus, again, tries to redirect her. In verse 13, he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. And we'll come back to this in a moment because it's really important, that idea of a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But first, Jesus tells her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Now, he's referring to her physical thirst, to this physical well that's in front of them. Right? It's, a, it's a source of life. It's a source of hope for the community. The community, in many ways, can exist in that area because the well is there. But Jesus is pointing her towards this idea of, hey, everything you do here is temporary, and it has to be repeated for you to continue to live. You have to keep coming back to this well every single day. It's never going to perfectly and finally satisfy your thirst. And and their well had a lot of significance attached to it too, right? It was Jacob's well. It was a way not just for them to get water, but it was part of their religious identity. It was part of who they were to say, this is the, the well from Jacob that we drink from. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's fine, but you're always going to be thirsty. And what I want you to think about this morning is in your life, what are the wells that you go to to try to satisfy your thirst? What is it? And especially we're talking this month about God's plan for sex. And when it comes to your sexuality, what are the wells that you're going to? And what are the needs you're trying to meet when you go to those wells? See, if we're going to have an honest conversation about the way God restores us when we step outside of his plan for sex, then it means we need to have an honest conversation about how our sexual misbehaviors are always motivated by a deeper need. And nobody just becomes addicted to porn because they have fun looking at it. There's something more going on inside there. Nobody bounces from relationship to relationship because it's just what they like to do. There's something more going on in there. Nobody decides to be unfaithful to their spouse just because they thought it would be a fun thing to do. There's something deeper going on inside of there. And for us to receive the hope and the healing that Jesus is offering to us, it requires that we're willing to look past or just kind of the surface sin and deeper to see what's really going on. Jesus is drawing this woman into a conversation where he's starting on the surface level, talking about water, but in just a moment, we'll see how he's getting to the, really the underlying needs of her life. And for us, when it comes to stepping outside of God's plan for sex, we have to be willing to let the Spirit do the same thing for us. At some point in the process, it means God will reveal why you're doing what you're doing. You know, to be restored is not just to stop doing those things, but it's to allow the Spirit to come and begin to fill the needs that motivate those actions. It means that God will come and show us that maybe we pursued certain relationships because they made us feel powerful or respected. God will come and show us that maybe we give in to certain temptations because we want to feel loved and accepted. Or maybe we manipulate people because that's the only relational model we've ever seen. 
Or maybe we give in to an addiction because there's, there's a deeper pain that we're trying to numb with those actions. Or maybe you jump from relationship to relationship because you're terrified if anyone actually knew who you were, they would want nothing to do with you. See, whatever it is, there's always a deeper need. And that's what Jesus is pushing her towards here. Hey, you can keep coming here, but you'll always be thirsty. Then he tells her, those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. And this really is the, I mean, this is the gospel in a sentence. This idea of Jesus comes as a spring of living water that wells up inside of us and leads to eternal life. And most of the time, we think of the gospel as a a statement of what Christ has done that exists outside of us. And once we hear it, we respond to it in faith, and we try to remove all the junk in our life so that this gospel can then take root in us. But what Jesus is saying is, look, I come to you as a spring of living water. And and a picture that's been really helpful for me, we talked about this a little bit in Lent, uh, during Lent in one of our messages, and uh, after service, Dave Blair uh, caught me, and he was telling me about growing up on a farm out in West Texas. And he said they would, uh, they'd run these long irrigation lines to water their crops. And, and then when they were done, they would turn off the wells and the, the lines would just sit uh, all winter long. And then the next year when they would come out to re- open the wells up, reactivate those lines, get the irrigation system going again, the first thing they would have to do is they'd have to take off all the sprinkler heads, all the caps on all the pipes, and turn on the well, and they had to let it run. Because over the winter, just all sorts of things had crawled in those lines. There were bugs, there were spider webs, there were mice, there were rats, there were nests, there were all sorts of things. So he said they would turn it on and they would let it run and that water from the well would begin to build up and, and the pressure would build up and it would begin to push all of this junk out of the end of the pipes. But he said it was vital for them that they didn't put the sprinkler heads back on until it was completely clear and had been flowing clear for a while. Because if they put it on too soon, the junk would get stuck and it just kind of gum up the whole process. And I thought it was such a beautiful picture of what I think Jesus is saying here. We think the gospel means Jesus comes and puts a little water and then we move everything out so that that water can stay pure. But what he's telling us is I come like a spring of living water to move down in the deepest parts of your soul, to surround your sin, to come underneath your sin and to push it up and to push it out by the power of my spirit. See, this is a a remarkably different understanding. It's pointing us towards this idea that the gospel always works from the inside out. It means that he is our unending source of of cleansing. He's our unending source of renewal. And when Jesus works this way, especially when it comes to stepping outside of the bounds of God's plans for sex, it means that he is coming and he's not just washing this stuff away. He's not just saying, okay, now I've forgiven it. You jump back over here. But he's actually coming and he's bringing living water that makes it so the shame, the guilt, the stench, the, the stink of all of that cannot stick to you anymore. He's making you completely new from the inside out. But the, the woman doesn't get it. I mean, you really can't blame her. She was just coming for a, a jar of water, right? She didn't know Jesus was going to be there. She didn't know people were going to tell her story for thousands of years. She was just trying to get her water and get back into town. And so she's talking to Jesus, and, and uh, she thinks, well, okay, he's promising me this living water, this well that won't run dry, and, and maybe he knows about some kind of secret water source out here in the desert. 
You know, so maybe she sees it as her sort, like, this is it. This is my ticket out of my shame. I, while all the other women go to the well early in the morning, I'll go out to this spring that this man has found, and I'll get my water, and I'll come back home, and life will be good. And it, it seems like it might be the end of her discomfort, but just when she thinks that, Jesus makes her even more uncomfortable. She says, tell me where this water is, and he responds, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. I mean, you can almost feel her deflate in that moment, right? She's got some of her answers in place. Like, this isn't the first time she's had that conversation. She knows how to answer the question so that people don't discover the man she's living with isn't her husband. She knows the easiest thing when they say, go get your husband, is just say, oh, I'm not married. But Jesus doesn't stop there. You see, a lot of times when it comes to our sexual sin, we become experts at trying to keep it a secret. And you know what to say and you know how to say it to kind of throw people off the scent of what's really wrong in your life. And that's exactly what she's trying to do here, but Jesus isn't going to have any of it. He says, yeah, I know. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now, you're not even married to him. I mean, he's pointing to this lady, to, to the, the idea that, hey, look, I know you've messed up a lot. It's all there for me to see. And we don't know why. I mean, maybe she's just the world's most unlucky woman. Maybe she is just a, a black widow and all five husbands died. Maybe she's been divorced. Maybe we don't know what happened or why it happened. All we know is she's ashamed of it. And it's led her to the point after the fifth husband dies that she decides, I don't even care anymore. I'll just be a live-in. If he'll take care of me, that's fine. And so she's assumed all the responsibilities of a wife with none of the privileges, and, and she's learned how to hide it, learned how to disclose it, and she's there at the well, and she thinks her usual answer of, I don't have a husband, will be enough. And Jesus says, I know. You've had five, and you're not even married to this one. And I think it points us towards this idea that, that your secret sin is never really a secret. Right? God always knows exactly what you're doing, when you're doing it, and who you're doing it with. But even in his knowledge of that, he comes to you and he speaks to you. And again, the story just, it tells us the story of the gospel because it reminds us that when you are at your worst, when you're behaving in ways you don't want anyone else to know about, when you've done things you're terribly ashamed of, when you've been ostracized by others, Jesus comes to you. And he doesn't come to you because of what you might be in the future. He doesn't come to you because you've made deals with him. He comes to you because that's what he does. The grace that Jesus extends to us is so amazing because he extends it when we are at our worst. In our lowest moment, he comes and he speaks to us. And he makes us this offer of living water and he begins to call us to himself. His love compels him to move towards us in our lowest moment, not away from it. And this woman, I mean, this whole experience is so shocking to her that when Jesus says, I know, I know, here's your story, I know all about you, she tries to change the direction of the conversation. 
She says, well, I'm a Samaritan and we like to worship over here and you Jews say we have to worship. You know, it's, it's the equivalent of like you've just been caught with something. You're like, look up here, uh, you know, trying to just divert attention away from it. Like if you ever got your kid in trouble, right? You're like, what are you doing? They're like, well, let me tell you what my brother did, right? It's the same thing. I'm just like, let's shift away. Let's not worry about that. And that's what she's trying to do. Just saying, man, this is, this is uncomfortable. And, and especially if you grew up in the church, you're an expert at this. You're an expert at shifting attention away if anybody gets too close. You know, of, 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 hey, like in home groups tonight, if the conversation gets a little too intense about the way God redeems our sexuality and restores us, we're really good at being like, well, what do you guys think about free will? Well, shut up. We're talking about something else, you know? And that's kind of like Jesus is, he's much nicer, but it's basically what he does. He's saying, look, you're worried about all of these stuff, all of these things of we worship here, you worship there. He tells her a time is coming and is now here when the true worshipers of God will worship in spirit and truth. And he's directing her back towards this idea of it's not about what you've done. It's not about the labels society has put on you. It's not about how other people view you. What, happen, what matters most is your relationship with God. And he's pulling her back into it. And, and she seems to be getting it a little bit, but she's still confused. She says in verse 25, I, I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. You know, the, the Samaritans, just like the Jews, had an expectation of the Messiah, God's anointed one, would come and would restore all things. And, and so she's very confused by this entire interaction with Jesus, and she just kind of falls back on, well, I know one day everything's going to make sense. And then Jesus blows her mind, and he says, that's today. The one you're waiting for is me. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the answer to all of your questions about God and life and sin. I am the, the source of hope in the midst of your shame. And it says that, you know, about this time, the disciples, they finally make their way back. They'd went into town to buy food, and they, they see Jesus talking with the woman. And then the woman goes back into her village, and Jesus has a conversation with the disciples. But it says she goes back in verse 29. And she tells everyone in her village, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and they made their way toward him. And if you skip down to verse 39, you see how they reacted to Jesus. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two more days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. See, this woman, she goes out just to, just to draw water one day. Something she'd done a, a thousand times in her life. Just go get the water so you can come back and you can cook and drink and bathe. And she goes out with no expectation that this day will be any different than any other day. She goes out of the village in her shame, in her isolation. And then she comes running back in. And John tells us that, that she's in such a hurry to get back, she leaves her jar there at the well. She goes back to town and she tells everyone there, come see the man who's told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? 
I mean, and, and even here, she's taking a risk. How many times has she told her family and friends, come see the man? Come see my first husband. Come see the second. Come see the third, the fourth, the fifth. And now she comes back and it's basically like, hey, I found husband number seven and I think he's the Messiah. Right? Like this is, there's no logic in this whole thing. But there is something that has changed in her that compels the people of her village to come out. I think it starts to point us towards this really important idea that, that your forgiven sin cannot shame you anymore. Right? Other people might try to make it. They might, like, they might try to say, yeah, but I, I know what you did. I knew his first wife. I knew him when he was in college. You never saw how she did that. He's confessed things to me. We hold all of this sin against other people, but the message of this story is that when Christ forgives you, your sin doesn't shame you anymore. It only glorifies Christ. That your darkest moments, your most reprehensible actions, become trophies of God's grace, declaring to the world, this is what the gospel does. It comes and brings new life from the inside out. And so when we've experienced that, again, our, our Christian reaction is, thank God he saved me from all of this. Now I'm never going to talk about it because it's kind of embarrassing. This woman's reaction is, come see the man who's told me everything I've ever done. And you got to think there are a few people in town kind of rolling their eyes thinking, well, we know what you've done. And yet they go with her. And they get out there and they hear Jesus teach. And, and maybe he reiterates this same thing, this whole lesson around Jacob's well of, I am the source, a spring of living water welling up within you. And they tell the woman, hey, at first we just, we came out and we believed because of what you said. But now we have seen, we have heard, and we believe for ourselves, this man is the savior of the world. See, when we've experienced Christ, we have a responsibility to tell others about that. And if we had time this morning, or maybe in your home groups tonight, you'll have the opportunity for others to tell their stories of God's redemption. And when we tell those stories, it gives others hope. It, it, it raises their expectation that something really could be different. But for all of us, eventually we come to the point where we've heard stories about Jesus We've heard examples of what he's done, but eventually we're faced with the decision of, but is that true for me? He's the savior of the whole world, but is he the savior for me? And when we're willing to accept that he is, doesn't mean that we're cleaning out everything on our own, but it means we're willing to say, Lord, please come and come to the deepest parts of me. Come to the most shame-filled corners of my heart and bring those springs of living water welling up within me and, and push up and push out all of the sin and all of the shame and all of the guilt, whether it's justified or not, get rid of it all and bring new life to me. Ushers are gonna come in just a moment and they're gonna serve communion to us. And as they do, it's gonna be just a, a really powerful visual reminder to us that the gospel works from the inside out. 
that the life God is calling us to is possible because of what Christ has done. As they lead us in that, the, the band's gonna lead us in a song that just talks about surrendering to the Lord and just laying it, laying everything you have down before him. So I wanna pray with you and then they're gonna come and serve us. Lord, you see our needs, you know the condition of each of our hearts this morning. I pray that, that in these next three or four minutes, Lord, you will draw our hearts to you. Help us to have an awareness of your power, an awareness of your presence in this moment. Lord, come and be strong and be powerful. Lord, as we receive the bread and the cup and we hold it in our hands, may it remind us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. May it remind us that when we were at our lowest, he called our name. Lord, may these be physical reminders of what you have done for us. And may it bring hope to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.